The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. My name is Leslie Hendrickson. I'm a reporter with Mansion Global. Anyone even vaguely aware of the real estate market knows how crazy it's been for the last two years, and anyone who's tried to buy a house knows how hard it can be. I'm here with three experts from the technology-powered real estate brokerage Redfin to talk about strategies for beating out the competition when there are multiple bids on a property. We're here with Daryl Fairweather, who's the chief economist at Redfin, Shoshana Godwin, a principal agent at Redfin in Seattle, and Michael Stein, a principal, principal agent with Redfin in Boston. Thank you all for being here. And just a reminder for those watching, you can send questions in the Q&A, and hopefully we'll get to some of those toward the end of the session. So Daryl, I want to start with you. What do you think the best strategy is to win a bidding war? The best strategy is to know exactly how high you're willing to go. So that way you just feel good no matter what the outcome is. If the home sells for more than you were willing to pay, you can walk away knowing that you made the good decision of not over, of not stretching your budget too far. And if you win, you know that you feel comfortable with what you paid and you can afford it. So I just encourage people to do their research ahead of time, really think through what their personal budget is and what their must-haves and their nice-to-haves are in a home so they can just feel good about whatever the outcome is. So Redfin had a report a few weeks ago about how much more likely cash buyers are likely to win the bidding war. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, if you come with a cash offer, you are 400% more likely to win in a situation where the other offer is offering the same price. So cash really is king. It's what home sellers prefer. Part of that is because they know the deal is going to go through, that the buyer has the money to pay, and oftentimes you can have a short escrow when you don't need to go through the mortgage company to get the loan approved. Uh, but I think things are going to change soon now that mortgage rates are up so much. I expect the housing market to get a little bit less competitive and for and not to be a requirement to come to, with cash, that more kinds of loans will be accepted and offers will be accepted. Right. And are there any strategies to avoid um, where people can make mistakes and, you know, end up in a situation that they don't want to be in? If you're going to waive a contingency, like an inspection contingency, I would still advise you to get that inspection done either before you make the offer or during the escrow period, just so you know what you're getting yourself into and there aren't any surprises. Uh, if you're waiving a financing contingency, just make sure you're prepared in the event that the financing doesn't go through, that you are willing to walk away from your earnest money, or you can come up with the money to still purchase the home. So just be careful about what you agree to when you're making an offer and you don't get in over your head. I want to turn to you. I know the market in Seattle has been pretty hot for a while. How much more competition are you seeing for properties? You're right. The market here has been hot for a while. I'd say the biggest thing we're seeing, as Daryl mentioned, is that there's a lot more cash in this market. So we're seeing more cash than we've ever seen before. Popular homes are getting upwards of 20 offers. It's become fairly standard. 
Um, people are doing more aggressive things to win in these situations. And there are definitely ways that we can work to combat against a cash offer if we've got a strong financed offer as well. Gotcha. So how are you prepping clients? What are you telling them when they're going into these, you know, very competitive situations? Essentially, the biggest thing to note is that this is an emotional market. It's not a rational market. We've got a lot of tech workers in Seattle that are very driven by data. And data just isn't that helpful in this market. You got to kind of throw rationale out the window and, and work on emotion because that's where that's where housing prices are going and that's how to win the bidding works. We can do that and still be very prepared. Um, I always kind of explain it to my clients as, you know, we're going to waive all contingencies, but we're not going to do that without doing our due diligence first. So if we're able to do our due diligence first and do our homework up front on the property, then waiving those contingencies doesn't have to be as scary. So there's a lot of different strategies for each of those specific contingencies to do so. And then in uh, in the final price, as Daryl mentioned, you got to know where you're going, but you've got to know that it's probably higher than the last home went that was similar. And so coming up with that number is really just what feels right to you and what number you'd be happy with getting it at. Michael, how how about you? How's the competition level in Boston and then the surrounding area? Yeah, it's uh, probably not unlike everywhere. It's it's stiff. Um, uh, in the Boston area, all the way out to the, the suburbs, uh, seeing 20 to as many as 40 offers in some cases at some of the lower price points is, is not unusual. Um, it's similar to what Shoshana was saying, it, it really is a, um, a clean offer environment. Uh, it's If it's not cash, um, which not everybody has the ability to do that, uh, it's uh, it's very much a waiving of an appraisal contingency at a minimum or a waiving of a mortgage contingency. Uh, and with that and potentially showing proof of funds for down payments, you can sometimes get to being as competitive as cash would be. But, but one thing that I'm advising clients right now is uh, if you know where your max is, you should be starting your search 10% or so below uh, where your max is. Um, it just, it's really not a question of if uh, properties will all be going above asking, um, especially if there's a, a seller agent instituted deadline for offers. So you have to go in with that mindset and um, be prepared to have all of your ducks in a row beforehand, including having your team, the attorneys, the lenders, the home inspectors, uh, have that all arranged up front. And if you're going to, if you can't come around to waiving the, the inspection contingency, which is almost a given in this market, at least um, try and arrange for a pre-inspection um, that will give you at least a look beforehand and you can then incorporate that and, and make a no, a no contingency, no inspection contingency offer. Got it. Got it. And so some of our um, listeners are wondering if it's even worth getting into the market right now. Should people be looking or if they have the option, should they be waiting until things calm down a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a believer that now is the time. I don't see um, I don't see interest rates coming down. Uh, <laughs> so I would think that, uh, you know, every every change, quarter point change, whatever in the interest rates, your buying power is decreasing. I don't see that um, pricing is going to necessarily come down until we get greater supply. 
So I, I do think that now is still the time, uh, especially if you've got a home to sell, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're probably sitting on a lot of equity and it's probably a good time to um, look to do that. But I would say that it, it's better to pursue your purchase first as opposed to your sale first. Um, Daryl, what do you think? Do you think now is people should be going forward now or should they wait because the prices have become too high? I think it's less dependent on the market and more dependent on people's personal situations. Right now, rents are also going up. So you have to think through your alternatives. Would you rather rent for another year and maybe pay 15% more in rent if you go get a new lease? Or do you want to buy now and lock in your monthly mortgage payment? You'll be locking it at a higher rate, but it may still be a better deal than renting, especially long term. So I think the most important thing is if you're going, if, if you feel like you're going to be staying put for the next five years and you find a home that you feel like that you feel good about staying in for the next five years, I don't think you're going to regret buying now. I think that you will build equity in the long run and come out ahead versus renting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so Shoshana, I also wanted to ask you and Michael, um, you're on deck for this one. Have you seen any clients make big mistakes and have buyers remorse because they moved too quickly and, you know, did buy a house that they weren't comfortable in? Yeah, I've honestly never had a client in my 12 years in the business regret purchasing the home that they did, or I guess I should say regret purchasing. Some of my clients have found that they're not exactly happy in the home that they purchased, but by the time they figured that out, that home has increased in value exponentially. Um, so the fact that they bought that home and now have the added equity from that sale allows them to buy another home that they might be happier in. Um, but no, I have not had a client that has uh, had regret about purchasing specifically. Michael, have you had that scenario? Occur? No, absolutely not. Um, I, I still think that the thought of value reduction is not uh, too prevalent right now. And um, I do tell, like she said, if, if somebody's in there for between five and 10 year period, you're going to ride out, uh, hopefully you'll ride out any cycle in the economy. So um, like, like Daryl said, um, it's, it should not be a losing uh, value proposition for these folks. Right, right. So one question, Daryl, from our from an audience member is probably one that you've gotten a lot. Will the housing bubble burst, especially like it did in 2008 and 2009? Where we are now is just completely different from where we were in 2008, 2007, 2006. The housing market is just much more stable financially. People have plenty of equity in their homes where they could sustain they could they could sustain any downturn. It would take housing values dropping by more than 20% for people to be in a situation where they would have to walk away with uh, zero equity or negative equity. So I don't think that's gonna happen. I just don't see how that could happen in a time where we have very limited supply and overwhelming demand. I think these higher mortgage rates are gonna slow down the housing market. We could have a year of pretty stagnant home value growth. Uh, just because those higher mortgage rates are going to cut into buyers' budgets. But at the same time, I wouldn't be all that surprised if even despite higher mortgage rates, prices keep going up, maybe not by 10% plus like like it has during the pandemic, or but we might see like 5% price growth, which is enough that nobody, I think, would really be in trouble. Right. Gotcha. 
And what about supply? Obviously, supply has been at historic lows. Is there are more people coming to market with their homes, or we're waiting to see that how that plays out? The, the market is so imbalanced right now where sellers have so much more power than buyers do that a lot of homeowners don't want to sell because they'll be buyers again and then they'll be faced with this really difficult market. <clears throat> so the way I see the number of new listings increasing is through new construction. Uh, builders have been building as much as they can to meet demand, but they are faced with supply constraints, with, uh, with supply chain failures, labor shortages. Just acquiring land in a lot of places is really expensive and it's difficult to develop a ton of housing when our zoning laws usually prefer single family zoning, uh, single family homes to multifamily. So it's not going to be the easiest thing to build ourselves out of, but at least there's a lot of demand for new homes right now fueling new construction. Gotcha. Um, so here's a question from Hal. How do you know that a selling agent isn't creating artificial demand? by setting a time for best and last offer. Do they ever bluff? And how do you know that there was a better offer? Michael, maybe you can start with that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, in my experience over a nine year period, uh, I have learned a couple of times the hard ways to not, uh, not, 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 uh, not to disbelieve what they're saying. Uh, if there's an offer deadline, um, more often than not, I would say 98 times out of 100, there will be offers uh, for that property. Um, I, I just, and even when a property's on the market, I've had situations where it could be on for up to a year and uh, my client is interested in submitting an offer and just lo and behold, that same day, there's another offer that comes up and, you know, I'm doubtful, but sure enough, it, it ends up going. So uh, I, I think you really have to um, take a leap of faith and trust that it's it's not artificial at this point. Shoshana, I can see you nodding in agreement. What are your thoughts? I've just had that same experience as Michael. Homes can sit on market for six months and all of a sudden someone shows interest and everyone's like, oh, I'm interested too. Um, and so those multiple offer situations can come up really at any point. But typically in Seattle, it is, you know, about a week for an offer review from the time the home comes on market to the time they accept offers. Um, in Seattle specifically, technically, realtors are held to a standard that they're not supposed to lie about other offers. I hope that's the same everywhere. Um, you know, some agents have really good strategies of making you nervous, even if they don't have that other offer. Um, in Seattle, we use something called an escalation clause. So rather than going in at a flat number, we come in and say, you know, we will pay $5,000 more than the next highest offer up until a certain point. If that escalation clause is triggered at any point and our offer um, escalates, the uh, other agent has to show us the other offer in full. So there's a little bit of protection there because you do get to see that the other offer was in fact pushing your offer up, which is helpful. Here's another question from an audience member, Steve, who asks, what is the demographic that is buying homes in this environment? Is there a trend such as millennials buying their first homes or people moving from one part of the country to another, say from the bigger cities like San Francisco or Seattle um, to, um, that was something we talked about a lot at the beginning was people were moving to less, less dense areas, the beginning of the pandemic, I mean. How have you, um, what have you been observing in your markets? Yeah, you know, Seattle is really driven by the tech companies that have all settled here and continue to settle here. 
So I would say the majority of my clients are our tech buyers. Um, a lot of buyers coming in from San Francisco who feel like our prices are still pretty good here in Seattle. Um, and then a lot of first-time home buyers, but with the first-time home buyers that are also tech workers, they've got a lot more um, cash due to stock and investing and different things. Um, so they're strong. They're not really your typical first-time home buyer. Um, those typical first-time home buyers that aren't in tech and don't have that, you know, influx of stock vesting, um, they struggle a little bit more here, but they're out there as well. And Michael, what do you think? Yeah, well, Boston's also a heavy tech-based market as well. And um, I actually, I'm seeing quite a bit of people that, uh, with clients of mine that purchased to me that are now looking to sell to move to areas like in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, there's a quite a bit of uh, migration out of the Boston area. Um, um, there's some movement here as well. It's just now with the whole pandemic environment that people can work from anywhere. Um, if they've got family in the area, um, they might uh, come back here. Uh, but but I, I guess if I had to say there's a little bit more of a, an out migration, if that's the right word, um, to people moving from a, the more expensive Boston market to areas where they can get more for their money. Seems like we've seen um, the South do quite well over the pandemic. Um, and that geographical area has done quite well because prices are cheaper and you know the cost of living is lower. Daryl, would you say that that's been a trend that Redfin has been tracking? Yeah, since the start of the pandemic, uh, migration has been increasing. We measure migration by looking at the number of Redfin users who are searching for a home outside of the metro area that they live in. And it used to be 26% of users before the pandemic that it went up to 31% in 2021 and came down a little bit. But now it's actually trending back up and it looks like it's going to be 32% for the first quarter of 2022. So it seems like this migration trend is still um, underway and even strengthening. During the pandemic, I think it was because of the normalization of remote work and people just reevaluating where they wanted to live because of the pandemic itself. But now I think a lot of it is driven by affordability that a lot of people have just been priced out of buying a home where they currently live since the start of the pandemic. And now they're looking to move to somewhere more affordable. Remote work is enabling that, but also just a tight labor market is enabling that. Right. And so what have some of the beneficiaries of that migration trend been? Well, if you are a homeowner, basically anywhere in the country, you've probably seen your home values increase and migration is probably a part of that. Even in Seattle, that sees a large amount of people leaving the city of Seattle. There are a lot of people moving in from the Bay Area who drive up home values there. And the people who leave Seattle for, say, Spokane drive up home values in Spokane. It just spreads across the entire country. Uh, so homeowners are definitely benefiting. And then the movers themselves, I think, are benefiting. We did a survey of whether people um, have more disposable income or whether they're happier after they move. And overwhelmingly, people are do, do report that they are better off after making a move like that. So although the housing market is really tough right now, I think there are people who are making it work by moving somewhere more affordable and they're coming out ahead. So another audience question is about buying to rent out homes, renting, uh, buying for investments. Is that a strong option right now or are prices too high to really be making money off that? Um, Michael, why don't we start with you on that? Yeah, I, I'm not 
seeing a ton of investment activity in, in my area. I think maybe with the, the bumping up of, of rates a little bit um, and, and the prices, it, it's becoming a little bit more difficult to justify uh, the, the investment. Um, you know, rents are increasing, but I, you know, I, I defer to Daryl as to what's increasing at a faster pace. But, um, uh, you know, the investment activity, I think, has, has slowed down, at least in my area. Yes, um, mortgage payments are going up faster than rents. So that makes it um, not the greatest investment in a lot of areas. But in the southwest and migration destinations like Florida, Arizona, Texas, I think it still is uh, popular and getting gaining popularity, investors buying up homes to rent them out. We've seen in some markets, um, I believe Atlanta was one of them. There are some others where investor market share is more than 30%. And this is a phenomenon of the South, not really something that we see, we're seeing on the coast so much. I will say here in Seattle, um, condos kind of took a hit during the pandemic, especially those close to, you know, South Lake Union, which is where our big Amazon campus is. And in the last couple months, we've seen a big increase in the demand for those condos, many of which are by cash investors, I think, who see that condos kind of flatlined a little bit and then rents were going up and they, they were hoping to cash in on that. Another huge thing we're seeing in Seattle is that the zoning laws are allowing for more um, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, and mother-in-law apartments. And we have a lot of buyers that are realizing that it's really smart to buy something that has a rentable unit. I'm actually sitting on top of our two-bedroom, two-bath rentable unit downstairs that we bought a couple years ago. And it's the best decision we've ever made because it's a primary home as well as an investment. So I push a lot of my clients towards doing something like that. And I think it's going to be something we see a lot more of in the future. So uh, that's a good segue potentially into another um, reader question, which is why people, what is the motivation to buy secondary homes, especially in this pandemic or almost hopefully post pandemic market? Well, I, I might get hated a bit for this, but we, we also purchased a second home during this pandemic. We purchased it in more of a, um, well, I don't want to say rural area of Washington, but a more um, recreational area of Washington um, on the water. And we did that um, because we felt the need to escape, but also because we realized that Airbnb and VRBO and different short-term rentals were um, such a great opportunity at that moment. Um, a lot of people are purchasing secondary homes for short-term rentals and have found that they're quite lucrative. I find a lot of my clients don't realize how much work they are. They're a ton of work too. It's a full-time job, get ready for that. Um, but we see a lot of that. We also see a lot of buyers that purchased a couple years ago, have found great equity in their home, were in at a very low rate. And when they go to purchase their next home, they, you know, they're deciding between listing their current home or renting it. And holding onto it as a rental has proven to be pretty beneficial in Seattle. So a lot of people are, are doing that as well. Just to add to that, I think that uh, for a lot of people, buying an investment home is the first foray they have into being a business owner. It seems approachable because if you already own a home, you have some sense of what the work will be and it seems a bit passive, but there is a lot of work that goes into maintaining it and doing property management. So I think for a lot of people who maybe are employees and are looking to diversify their income streams or diversify their wealth, maybe out of the stock market into something a bit more stable, real estate is just a natural first foray into that. Any thoughts on that, Michael? Uh, not too much to add. I guess here in the in our area, we have uh, 
Cape Cod is is a is a market that, strangely enough, has has probably not been enjoying the same level of growth um, that some of the interior areas have, the Boston area. So you're hearing the term "buy your second home first," um, and and if you're having trouble purchasing because the prices have gone up so much, at least potentially continue to rent and buy a place on the Cape as a vacation slash investment, uh, get an income from that, but then have the ability to escape to somewhere else that's um, that'll provide you a little bit of um, relief from the sameness. And so that's what uh, I'm seeing up here a little bit. I have some clients that are specifically doing that. There, there also may be some like altruistic reasons people are doing it. Perhaps they have a parent that they want to buy a home for and give them some kind of stable rent or not charge rent at all, or maybe same with their kids. Maybe their kids are on the rental market. The rental market's really tough. So they buy a property and rent it out to their child instead. I think a lot of people will see it as just like a win-win in a lot of ways, whether it's they get to have a vacation home or they get to provide housing for a family member and they get to make some money off of the appreciation and real estate value. So this next is, question is a combination of two questions. Um, you know, over the pandemic, some markets that had been pretty much dead have benefited tremendously. And then other markets like San Francisco and New York have taken a big hit because of the migration out, like you were talking about a little bit earlier, Daryl. Do you see these markets sort of stabilizing and returning to where they were before? Or is it just a whole new ballgame? Well, a place like San Francisco, the Bay Area, they had some record-breaking price growth in the 2010s. So I think even without the pandemic, it was unlikely that they were going to see those same price gains for as long as they did, or, or even longer, because um, people just get fed up with the high prices. They get priced out. They have to go somewhere else. So that's one reason that these price gains are spreading across the country is because people get priced out of coastal California, they move inland, they move to other parts of the country and they bring their money with them and they drive up prices. So I think that's going to continue. I think that moving forward, it's not just going to be certain markets that see large price gains. It's going to be more evenly distributed. And some places like Austin, they still have plenty of room to catch up in terms of affordability or unaffordability to a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco. So I would expect those to kind of those kinds of places to see the largest price gains moving forward. And then we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you all um, about a sort of further looking predictions. What do you see the market looking like in, say, five to 10 years, Daryl? I, I hope that we have more housing in five to 10 years and the housing market is just overall in a healthier place. Um, right now, there's a, a large number of millennials renting the housing market and driving up demand. But in five to 10 years, I think we'll be back past that the big hump in terms of that increased demand. And hopefully by then the builders will have caught up at least somewhat to meet demand and we're in a more balanced place. Michael, do you have thoughts about, about your specific market in the next five to 10 years? Still remain hopeful. I think that <laughs> you know, we should, we should, uh, I, I think the growth will subside, um, that we'll see lower uh, price uh, increases and uh, there'll be a little bit more rationality that enters into the market. Um, but, um, you know, part of that will be dictated by the interest rates and we'll wait and see uh, where those end up. So, but 
don't I don't I just don't see anything really happening to uh, dramatically impact things moving forward. Right, Shoshana. I'd have to agree with Michael. Um, although I think interest rates might stabilize things a bit here, and I, and I hope that they do. I think that's the intention there. Um, supply and demand is just still going to be the biggest driving force of our prices here in Seattle. And the supply is low, and we don't have a lot of places to build in Seattle. Um, and the demand is high and continuing to increase as these large companies continue to hire. So agree with everyone else. I hope it stabilizes a bit, but I don't anticipate it getting too much better for buyers anytime soon. Well, on that cheerful note, I want to thank you all for being here. And thanks to our, on it, our audience for tuning in. Please join us back here on Monday when Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren R. Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levinson discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great weekend. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.